Welcome to the GPS Training Podcast, the monthly podcast keeping you up to date with everything in the world of outdoor GPS navigation. Welcome to the GPS Training Podcast. It's our 66th episode. This special mid-month podcast, I'm joined by a special guest, Tommy Wilkinson. Welcome, Tommy, to the GPS Training Podcast. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. He was, this is, are you ready for this one, Tommy? This is it. He was a keen racer, having won numerous Scottish downhill races and spent two seasons chasing his World Cup dream as a dirt, bur- d- dirt bag privateer. A little bobble on a jump in 2013 left Tommy with a fractured skull, brain hemorrhage, a spinal cord contusion. Contusion, that's right, is it? We'll go into this in later. <laughs> He's nodding at me with a damaged disc and a permanently paralysed arm. He's now an award-winning photographer and cinematographer. And what do you think, Tom? That's not a bad introduction, is it? I think that's uh, probably over-generous, to be honest. <laughs> I thought when I was writing it, I thought, you know, he's either going to love that and think that's absolutely load of rubbish, that is. So. so let's go all the way back to the beginning. Who is Tommy Wilkinson, then? Well, I, I think, first and foremost, um, there's various layers. Uh, I'm I'm Northumbrian, born and bred, so I'm quite I'm quite proud of that. Um, but I'm a mountain biker primarily, um, and, and that's my passion, and that's my hobby, and that, that's the kind of main thing that drives my life. Um, and then professionally, as you mentioned, um, I've I've got a film production company, so I started out in photography and then moved into cinematography, and we produce films primarily based around, as you can guess, cycling um, and mountain biking and mountain biking. Yeah, very good. So your racing career then was this. Big, was this a big part? Was this your full-time job, was it then? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say it was my full-time job. I, that's what I aspired it to be. Um, but I had two seasons racing the World Cup circuit, which is the kind of highest level. Right. Well, it is the highest level of mountain biking you can get to in downhill. Um, and so so it was. It, I wouldn't say I was earning a living, but it's what I was doing full-time. So is this the European circuit, was no, it? It's, it's, it's global. Global so Canada, and New, New Zealand, um, Brazil at one point. Um but primarily Europe, yeah. So you're in the Alps and the Dolomites, um, Germany as well. There's some absolutely frightening downhill routes there, aren't there? Fun. <laughs> <laughs> some of them can be a bit, some of them can be a bit uh, twitchy, but uh, fun, I think, is, is a better phrase. Yeah, well, yeah. I must, I must put this book. My son, uh, we spoke a little bit earlier. My son's a was a, a fanatical downhill mountain bike so i spent all my life watching these youtube films with him of the the famous danny hart isn't it the danny hart downhill that uh, when he uh, when he it's that horrible wet day isn't he that uh, champery in, in switzerland yeah that that, that is a uh, that is quite a scary track actually to be fair <laughs> yeah if nobody's watched it you need to just put into youtube you know danny hart you no know, downhill it's, it's fantastic i think it was on it was not even on a mainstream channel it was on some of the channel the commentator was absolutely brilliant wasn't it so, <laughs> yeah it's, uh, a, it's a classic yeah Fantastic. So, two seasons—that's quite a long time traveling. Then, so were you sponsored by a, a manufacturer? Then, is that how it works? Yeah. So you you would get your your bikes given to you. Um, but then a lot of what we did is at that point there probably wasn't as much money in the sport as there is now. And when, when you were kind of on that cusp of, you're not really one of the best in the world. You're trying to become one of the best in the world. So you're kind of in a no man's land. Yeah. Um, nobody's really going to be giving you money. So we were quite lucky in that we had um local businesses gave us money. It was me and a friend from Wooler went and did it. Um, so we had and we saved up ourselves you know we'd work in the winter um, and you'd save I don't know six, seven, eight, nine, ten grand mm-hmm. and then you put it all in from kind of April to 
September, that's that's it. You know, you're off and you're in your van and you're off racing the World Cup circuit. Oh, you're not flying around like factory boys, are you? Then yeah, you're in yeah. your van. Yeah, de- you're definitely not in first class. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So, did this come to an end? With your accent, did it in 2013? No, it, it came to an end before that. I think I was moving away because that's quite an intense yeah. lifestyle, um, and it becomes unsustainable unless you can get onto a big factory team, which I realised wasn't wasn't going to happen. Um, so then uh, I, I moved into effectively journalism within the bike industry, which meant I get to ride my bike pretty much every day anyway. And I went out to New Zealand um, in 2012, the back end of 2012. Um, and I was there for six months and it was actually when I came back I'd only been back home ten days when I had my accident so were you when you say in journalism were you writing or were you yeah I was, I, I was writing um, doing a little bit of videography um, but primarily writing for a magazine called Dirt at the time um, which I've was heard of that yeah actually. it was great great it doesn't exist anymore sadly it's okay um, but, but it was a fantastic magazine and then you so you then came back after you'd been to New Zealand and um, came, came back and I was going to do the um what's now called the Enduro World Series. So I was moving away from downhill into Enduro, which I think is probably what most people know yeah. as mountain biking, which is um, it's almost like a car rally. So you have six stages, but you ride your bike between all the stages rather than getting on a ski lift or whatever. Um, so you ride around a 25-mile loop and you do timed runs wi- within that. Um, so that was my plan to go away and do do that because that was a relatively new discipline. Um, but obviously I had, I had my accident and that, that changed things. So, because people don't know, there's different disciplines. So, there's downhill. Is yeah. that short? You literally, you, you get to the top of the mountain or your hill, and then yeah. you come down, and they're literally you no know, four or five minutes. You can be shorter, yeah, yeah, sort of between two and five minutes, and it's a time trial. You're on the track by yourself. Um, it's you against the clock fundamentally. You're not really competing against anything other than that. And whoever gets the fastest time between point A and point B is the winner. And then um, there's the enduro, which is that it, longer. And then the like enduro that. is is a similar. Um, sort of premise in that you're timed between A and B but you get six attempts to be timed and you have to get to each of those time trials under your own steam rather than just up on a ski lift to the top and then down to the bottom. And are those time trials often downhill sections then? Or yeah, they're, they're downhill. They're Some, usually downhill. Sometimes they'll be a bit flat and a bit peddly to test some physicality um, but primarily downhill, yeah. Very good fitness needed for that then because you've got to get from each to your time trial, recover get to your next one it's a totally different type of fitness to, to downhill which is quite explosive and, and power based so they tend to be a bit bigger the downhillers whereas enduro you know you need a lot more aerobic fitness and you need to have stamina and everything else because as you say you're going through 25 miles which is a full day thing um, but you also need power to be able to get the time on, on the downhill so it's a challenge in sport enduro. And the bikes will be a little bit lighter. They're, they're lighter, yeah. They've got more gears, a wider range of gears. Um, they, they look completely different to a downhill bike, which is which is a really specialist bit of kit. Fantastic. So, 2013, the accident. How yeah. did that happen then? Um, <laughs> it was. It's quite embarrassing actually to have such a long list. <laughs> it, of it, yeah, you're just you're just about this, this high points of racing around the world, and then yeah. now we're going to go to a. Yeah, it happened I mean, at some big event uh, where you were winning. You no, I was, I was in the woods by myself doing a jump I'd done hundreds of times, and um, I was just a bit tired, I think. And uh, as I took off, I just got a bit. It was a big jump, so you had to take off in a landing that was about thirty foot away, but it was in quite dense trees. Um, which was part of the thrill but I just got a bit skew-whiff on the takeoff and landed squint and I started to get pitched over the bars and as soon as I started getting pitched over the bars I kind of 
it's like an Exocet missile, you know, I, could, I thought, I'm going to hit that tree. And inevitably, I, I did hit that tree. Do some of accidents before on motorbikes, I say, Rob, did your life go into slow motion, did it or not? Do you remember? Or I, I've actually got it on video, the right. crash. Oh, and um, it happens really quickly, but I can remember looking at that tree and it does feel it like is. slow motion. I was thinking, oof, this one's gonna gonna hurt. I know. I've occasionally done some, and it's amazing how your brain just slows down, and and you see everything oh. as clear as day. You kind of go, this is not going to end well. Yeah, absolutely. And and you don't know what the outcome's going to be, but yeah, it's a strange, strange feeling. To... So you hit a tree, then, did you? I hit a tree. Yeah, uh, with with my head first. Um, <laughs> of course, why? I mean, literally, it was like the old cannonball <laughs> sketches where somebody gets fired out of a cannonball, head first, and then my shoulder came through and sort of like a bad rugby tackle, really, into into a tree, which is what caused the most serious bit of damage. How did you get help then? Oddly enough, I hadn't seen my dad for quite a while, and. Uh, there is a bit of a funny story with this when we used to go racing when I was much younger and my dad would take me um, and I had a problem I would fall off in front of my dad all the time uh, when I was racing I don't know whether I just caught him out of my peripheral vision or whatever it was but I would quite often fall off wherever he was standing Um, and I'd said to him before I'd gone up to do this jump in the evening I said oh do you want to come up and watch me ride my bike Um, so of course he turned up just as I was having the crash. Wow. Um, I was lucky then. Wasn't it was it? really lucky because, yeah, it would have been a completely different scenario if if that hadn't happened. Were you knocked out then? Were you? I wasn't knocked out. No, I was conscious the whole time. Um, but I knew immediately. The first thing I said to him as he came running over, I said, "Oh, you need to stop the bleeding." He said, "What?" I said, "Oh, you need to stop the bleeding on my arm." He said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, where I ripped my arm off, you need to stop the bleeding." He said, "Well, your arm's there." And, and I had a friend who'd had this injury, mm-hmm. and I knew, I thought, oh, I think I think I know what I've done. Um, but So that was a bit, a bit traumatic, because suddenly you realise, wow, this is really serious, and then you start trying to wiggle your toes, and I think at that point, he said, what do I need to do? I said, well, you better call an ambulance, because I can't wiggle my toes. And then it sort of, it changes the whole dynamic of the, mm-hmm. you've cracked, it's gone from oh, silly crashing your bike to, actually, this is quite a serious problem so how far are you away off the road for the ambulance to get to you not too far actually maybe 500 yards i was in an old quarry um which had good good road access uh, quite remote all the same um so called an ambulance but but that took an hour and a half to arrive so that was that was a little bit stressful whereabouts in the country were you uh, near, near berwick upon tweed right okay yeah. um but the ambulance came from cramlington in the end <laughs> so just bad timing <laughs> And then you got transferred to which hospital did you go to then? Um, to the RVI, straight right. to the RVI. Um, and they put me into, uh, they have a, it's called either five, I believe. And I think it's more to do with traumatic brain injuries mm-hmm. um, because they weren't quite sure where to put me at that point. Um, you were conscious of all this. That must have been, you must, like, your mind, like... You just been, oh, it was hard, it was hard. Uh, and I think one of the things I did find particularly hard was... you because my dad would have to run back to the road and come back that was quite stressful seeing him starting to really Be now agitated. that I'm now that I'm a parent myself mm-hmm. you think whoa that must have been difficult to sort of you know I couldn't move he doesn't want to touch me and the ambulance still isn't coming that, that was quite tough mm-hmm. so RBI how long were you in the RBI for? Um, nine, nine, nine weeks not that not not as long as it could have been in the scheme of things really um, mm-hmm. I'd actually been in hospital before in 
just a couple of years earlier for about six weeks for a bad leg injury that I, I sustained. So I kind of had some experience of, of what to expect. But at that time, did you think this is the end of mountain biking? Um, yeah, I, I did realise. Yeah, pretty pretty quickly um, that it wasn't. I wasn't going to ride my bike in the same way ever again. Um, and I, how how did that <clears throat> make you feel? And is that kind of like your life up to that stage had been there or, or suppose you look and think well at least I'm still alive no it wasn't too bad to begin with because I think you I always think I've been quite pragmatic in just dealing with whatever is in front of me mm-hmm. so I didn't really have time to think about that I was more bothered about actually can I walk again or yeah. will I be able to have any quality of life again so that came first and then by the time I'd got out of hospital I was, uh, I was you know I was on my feet but I, I walked with a stick for a long time because I had um, very wobbly legs, and uh, I mean, I'd lost three stone in weight. I think I was, you know, if you'd seen me on the street, you wouldn't recognise me. Um, but I think by maybe twelve or thirteen weeks, I was managing to ride a bike round in circles, which I actually found easier than walking. Um, so that that was quite nice. Yeah. That was one of my questions. I wrote down how long was it before you got back on a bike? Yeah, so twelve weeks. About about that, yeah. But I mean, I was just riding around you know, in a car park or, yeah. or nothing bumpy at all. Always very smooth and just trying to get my balance. But I think I'd cycled that much. I, I definitely felt more comfortable on my bike than I did walking for a long time. Right, okay. Yeah. So your bike, did, you must have had to adapt that bike to, to make it rideable. Yeah, and, and that was quite challenging because, um, of course, you get on a bike with one arm and you think, oh, it'll just be the same. And suddenly you realise that actually you don't have any stability. Yeah. You're just going to fall off, and and that was that was a shock. Thinking, oof, I thought I'd be able to ride with with one arm, no bother. But actually, it was way harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, so the bike's all been adapted, and I've gone through various sort of iterations of sort of homemade modifications mm-hmm. to start with. Um, some of which. I can't believe we did, but <laughs> but you know it was a means to an end, and to the point now where I've I've got this bike that's all got custom brakes and custom electronic gear shift, and uh, it is really quite tech driven to allow to allow me to ride. Yeah. So have you fallen off since? Is this? A, a, I suppose you initially you would have fallen off quite a bit, did you, or not? Or, or? Um, yeah, I did, but I didn't have any. I didn't have any injuries. Um, I went to Whistler in 2016. And I took my bike, and uh, I have a few friends who, who live out there, and we went to the Sunshine Coast, which is kind of a, a little headland off Vancouver. And um, I rode some really quite technical stuff there, and I thought, all oh, right, I could actually get get back into riding some quite hard stuff. So I, I ended up in this situation, I thought, I'll go a bit faster, I'll go a bit faster, and I was started to ride quite hard stuff. And then in the start of 2018, I... Um, I was actually doing a little bit of filming just just around Rothbury, and I fell off quite badly, and I needed to go to hospital. <laughs> so I turned up at hospital with my arm already in a sling, and I said, "I think I've broken my arm." And the the doctor said, "Where did you get the sling from?" <laughs> oh, I've got a bit of explaining to do. So of course I ended up having to say, "Well, actually, my arm's already paralysed." So then I got a lecture about why I was riding a bike anyway, and, and so. So it was your paralysed arm that you thought was broken, was it? Yeah, and that's what I had done. Yeah, I'd wow. Had, um, fractured the humerus on my paralysed arm, a big spiral fracture down there. So it was it was quite painful, actually, considering I can't really feel it. But I, it, it, I don't know, it, your body knows, I think, so it manifests the pain in a different way. Yeah. So even though I couldn't feel the arm, I had pain all over my body. And, yeah, um, <laughs> it was a bit embarrassing. <laughs> 
so surely you do a little bit, go a little bit easier these days. Are you matured with age now? I do now. You? Yeah, I, I just got to the point where um, I just got a bit fed up of sort of lying in the dirt, groaning with with pain, <laughs> and I just thought I don't know how much more of this I can actually take. So I've, I've backed right off in the last couple of years, and I just ride a bit differently, but. Uh, I still enjoy it. It's a different experience, but I still enjoy it all the same. Well, I think I said, I, when I first met you, I said I, a, a mutual friend of ours. We we, we met. Uh, I was I, I meet everyone out, out walking in the evenings, and he said, uh, and he, he told me he said this this guy's got one arm. He's a tremendously fast rider with one arm, and uh, and then I don't know, be month oh, a few weeks later, you arrive into our bed. I'm thinking that's, that's the guy I've been hearing about, you know. So, <laughs> but I, it's funny because. I say my my other hobby is motorcycling, and uh, I do track days. And uh, the listeners will know. And you know, there's a guy on the track day who's got one arm. He's it's just unbelievable. He overtakes, and this guy overtakes you with one arm. You think this is not fair. <laughs> this, <laughs> this guy is so much better than me with 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 one arm. Like what? I, don't know. <laughs> I must admit the uh, the sort of racing element never leaves. And uh, <laughs> I was at Glen Tress one day. And um, a guy slightly older than me was at the top, and he, he kind of pushed in in front of me. And I thought, right. <laughs> so I ended up racing him <laughs> all the way for about five minutes to the bottom. And at the end, we had a bit of a giggle about it, actually. But uh, I wouldn't normally do that. But it's sort of it was like a flag to a bull, you know. I thought, right, I'm going to have to chase you down now. <laughs> Competitive streak still. Yeah, right, it, still it still lingers there. Especially just dismiss you at the top. Yeah, yeah. What it's more dormant than it was, but it, it can't fire up yet. Fantastic. The other thing you do is I'm going to bring in the naughty Northumbrian events. So um, yeah. I was just putting these uh, quick quick questions together yesterday. Uh, you know, Catherine works for us. So yeah. Catherine was oh, sat opposite to me and said, ask Tommy one question. Which one's best, Lynn Briggs Farm or <laughs> Clennell Farm? <laughs> if, <laughs> because uh, I'm going to explain why, why I've asked this question. Is Catherine, who's our bookkeeper, is a farmer's wife. Uh, from a farm called Lindbergh's Farm up the valley from here and Tommy used to have one of his events there but then went elsewhere <laughs> <laughs> and and started running it uh, somewhere else so that, that was the question so that's the question Tommy for Catherine which one was the better uh, location? I'm going to sound like a real politician here. <laughs> if if Limbriggs was bigger, would have stayed at Limbriggs. If they'd had more room, would it would have stayed at Limbriggs? But we just we just they didn't have the room, sadly. But uh, I love being up there. Felt way more remote than Clennell. Um, but they they both have their they both have their um sort of benefits. So what's the naughty Northumbrian event then? It's an enduro bike festival now. Um, it started as a race, but now it's a festival. So it, it starts. Runs over the August bank holiday weekend. Um, people turn up on the Friday. We have live music. We have games. We have fire pits. And then the riders head out into Kidland Forest, which is in the National Park in the in the upper Coquit Valley. And there's six stages, and they ride around to a 20, about 26-mile loop, about 5,000 feet of climbing. Um, and they ride every every sort of trail in the day, they come back, have a few beers on the Saturday, and then they go and race that same loop on, on the Sunday. Brilliant. Um it's a great location, Kidland Forest, isn't it? Ah, it's, it's great, it's yeah. Absolutely. It's... Uh, people, if people, our listeners will know, because we've had a couple of videos in there. So I did a walk and talk with a phoenix watching in Kidland Forest. And I also did, um, I don't know how accurate is a GPS unit in there. So uh, if you've watched some of the YouTube stuff that I've done, uh, you'll, you'll know it's uh, it's very hilly, though, isn't it? Very it, hilly. It, it's very, it's deceptive. Because we don't necessarily have the same height, as in total elevation of Scotland, I think people think, oh, going to Northumberland, it'll be an easy jolly. But you're going from, you know, the sort of valley floor to the top, at times nearly 1,500 feet. 
Um, and it shocks people because it's hard climbing and it's steep um, and you're kind of valley floor to the top, valley floor to the top all, all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really easy to get lost in Kidland if you don't know the lay of the land, just the way the kind of little valleys fold into each other and, and wrap around each other. It's a popular thing when you look at the mountain rescue, a lot of walkers get rescued from Kidland Forest because as you say, it's very, very hard to work out exactly where you are. Yeah, it's a confusing landscape in there. You, you kind of really, it took me a good couple of years to really, and I would say I know it really well now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be fairly confident to be plopped anywhere in there and find my way out, but for a lot of people it's it is a challenge, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's very remote as well, isn't it? You yeah. know, again, when you get in the top end of the forest, and for us walks, we kind of pop out, and there's some quite nice summits around there on the end, but you are a long way from anywhere, really. Yeah, you are, and, and we had um, we had a bad break, actually, in, in 2019. A guy broke his um, tib and fib and his patella um, <laughs> at Fairhoff, so, which is yeah. quite a long way out from anywhere. Yeah. Um, but the mountain rescue did a did a great job and got them out. But if that hadn't been an event, <laughs> he'd have probably been there quite a long time before he was found. Well, it could have been quite serious actually, mm-hmm. um, because you know those farms they're not there's not that many people in the valley as there once was. Mm-hmm. So the chances of somebody stumbling across you are, are slim. And how many people do you have on the event then? Eight hundred. Wow, this is a big event now. In mm-hmm. fact, do we have eight fifty last year? I think so. It's big. It's third biggest in the UK now. Brilliant. So it's and that's based at Clennell then, is it? Yeah, it's it's based at Clennell. We we rent a field off um off John Snaith, um sixty six acre field. So it's a big site mm-hmm. we've got now. Um we don't fill it, but I, I think at some point in the future we probably will. Um and yeah, set off from Clennell and, and that's where we have all the marquee and the, the beer and, and everything else. Very good. So they must come from all over the country, do they? We had a guy the first year we had a guy from Italy came over. Wow. Um had a few German people. We had an American guy come over. Yeah, I think the, our biggest draw is still from sort of North Yorkshire. But as the event's gone on, yeah, we get people from Wales and the Midlands. and I suppose there's not many places in the country with like so sparsely populated where you can mountain bike and not come across people. Because actually, I, I say I walked extensively around that and you see nobody. For you guys, that's a real benefit. Because actually, if, if you're in some of the forests in, in Wales or in, in Yorkshire, there's a lot more people within that forest oh, it's, I think and I think that's the big attraction to us um, to be honest there's not much people pressure on Kidland mm-hmm. at all and um, all the trails that we have in there are hand built and to be honest you probably wouldn't notice them mm-hmm. at all if you didn't know what you were looking for um, the way that, the way they've been created uh, and that's brilliant it, you really do feel even though it's a plantation it fe- has that kind of wild feeling about it um, and I think that's why a lot of riders want to come up and do it because it's Unless you go to Scotland, you don't get that experience in England, yeah. really, anywhere else. So it's onwards and upwards for that event going forward then, by the sounds of it? Hopefully, yeah. I mean, we've got to see what damage Storm Arwen's done. Yes. Yeah. But once we've kind of got over that little bump, it, yeah, Very good. keep it going, yeah. We'll talk more about storms later on. And then you became an award-winning photographer and cinematographer. That's perfect. <laughs> I'm learning, you know. So this compost accident was it? so you kind of this was the new career that you decided to go yeah, for, really. Yeah, because I was looking for a way to stay involved in in cycling, and, and I knew that wasn't going to be through riding my bike, really. Um, so you think, oh, well, I, st- I still want to see my friends. Um, I still want to travel to a certain extent. What am I going to do? So I had a friend in New Zealand who who's probably the best mountain bike photographer. And and I was in New Zealand, um, and he said, "Come on, then come and spend 
a week with me and I'll give you a crash course. And it was a crash course. I got shouted at a lot and, <laughs> and told what to do a lot. But it, it was a great, great sort of grounding. And, and from there... And that was Stills originally, was that it? That was Stills just originally, yeah. Stills. Um, I just thought Stills would be a lot easier for me. And that's kind of... I had a little bit of knowledge of Stills anyway, so it felt like an easier mm-hmm. transition to, to go into that. So, that. so that's what I did. And then the videos came along later then, did they? Yeah, a couple of years later. Um, as I was doing Stills, there was... I started to get asked, could you do a video as well? And me being me, yeah, yeah, I'll do, I'll do a video. I mean, I'll just figure it out as I, as I go along. Um, so so that's that's what I did. And, and I think there's a lot of crossover anyway because, you know, a, a lot of the best... sort of if you look at Hollywood, the kind of the best cinematographers and the best director of photography, so they're photographers, you know, they're framing their shot, even though it's moving, but they're treating it like, like a photography scene. So there's a lot of crossover that you can do. There's more different technical aspects you have to learn but that you can learn those um, and what do you shoot these on these on well a 35 millimeter camera is it or gopros or no I, I, I shoot mine on on um what's called a cine 35 now which is a um it's a panasonic camera so it, it's not as big as a hollywood camera but it's better than a kind of dslr that you see right. a, a lot of productions happen on um so that gives us a a Netflix ready camera so if we want to go to Netflix and say we've made a film that mm-hmm. they'll accept it because it can be shown in a cinema or, or whatever it has that quality about it and you also used quite a few drones to you as well yeah we've got a couple of drones yeah um, your kind of traditional DJI Inspire and, and Mavic and then we've got one of these FPV drones which is the ones that can bank and turn really sharp and it means you can fly through really tight gaps and crash it into trees and, and all sorts of stuff are these the ones that follow you then you can kind of put, put some um, on then follows the riders. Is yeah, it? No, we, we don't do that. Actually, there's always a guy. There's always somebody controlling it. Right. Um, but you can fly it through tiny gaps, and they're kind of all handmade, actually. So it's a bit geeky. Mm-hmm. It's quite cool in a way. You have to pick all the components, then you build it, wow. and then you program your own controller to it, and you stick a GoPro on the top of it, and it'll do eight mile an hour. Because um, those the drones have really opened it up for the the smaller photographer, really, hasn't it? Because suddenly. Yeah. You used to have a helicopter in the old days because the big yeah. shots. Suddenly, anybody can get it, those shots, can't they? Absolutely transformed the entry point into filmmaking for so many people. If you wanted to do a high-end production beforehand, there was a real cost barrier there to do that, and there still is to a certain extent. But you know, you don't need, like you say, you don't need a helicopter with a, a city flexes the mountain system underneath, which might cost you ten grand for a day. You, you just don't need that anymore. Mm-hmm. You can do it yourself. So that, that's been pretty amazing. So. Do you go out and pitch for work with people, or do you do you, do people come to you? How does it work, and the kind of things that that you're doing? A mixture of both. Um, we'll we'll get approached saying we have this concept. Can you deliver that for us? And we'll say yeah, this is going to take this, this, and this, and this. And sometimes we come up with our own ideas, where we say this is a film we think has some value, and we'll approach brand A, B, and C and say we want to make this film. This is what we can give you out of it will you put this much money in? And they'll either say yes, no, or... And you, do you have do you have favourites or not? You can look back on work that you've done and go, that was my best piece of work, or do you just get sick and by the time you get, get there? Um, <laughs> there's a bit of that, yeah. <laughs> you can get a bit sick looking at them. And you've got to watch that a bit. You've got to remove yourself from the project for a couple of days and, and get mm-hmm. some feedback and then come back to it so you get a different perspective on it. But I think... It changes. When we first started, we are doing a lot of what we call performance-led pieces, which are led by the rider's ability on the bike. Um, and I still like doing them 
because that's that's amazing and that's inspiring. But increasingly, I, I, we're kind of moving into more documentaries, um, and we're ta- we're using kind of bikes as a vehicle to move into a space to say, all right, we ride in this landscape or that landscape, or you know, a little bit like what Surface Against Sewage mm-hmm. kind of done. We're moving into that space a little bit more, um, and I quite enjoy that now. I think because you can kind of go a bit longer with your film and. and dive into things a bit more and that kind of nicely moves on to the other thing which I've learned from you is, is environment are you an environmentalist is that the correct term um, for it or not uh, uh, <laughs> oh, it <laughs> depends how people interpret that I wouldn't I wouldn't say quite keen on land so. access yeah. and working being that voice of the mountain biker yeah I think I have practice. I have kind of moved into that um, role a little bit um, uh, well I have yeah um I think um, I'm interested in the science behind it, and I'll, I'll let that lead me, whatever's going on. And that can be science, as in uh, biological science or physical science, but that can also be kind of human sciences as well, because that is a big part in land access, what, how people want to use the land and how they treat it and how it's been used for centuries, and you can't forget that. Um, so I kind of blend those two things together. Um, in your film work as well as it, your... And now yeah. that's moving into the film work as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking at the impact that mountain biking does on the landscape is that it does or doesn't it depends yeah um and and we'll look at that and and looking at how people perceive mountain biking as well who are mountain bikers and how mountain bikers themselves perceive the sport um and that's a big thing going forward i think i think it's um we've never quite managed to kind of sit alongside more traditional out outdoor pastimes walking um climbing they have very well um, centred kind of groups I suppose you've got the Ramblers Association you've got the British Mountaineering Council mountain biking has never really had that we've got British cycling but that's all about the sporting side that's not about the tens of thousands of people who go out and ride on a on a trail or a hill path every weekend so that's kind of where we're looking at what is a voice to say okay how can we fit into that that kind of be, be a part of the fabric of outdoor activities and also the economic impact that any tourism into an yeah. area has now we talk, you're talking about the naughty northumbrian event how much does that deliver within the region you know i always it's about 180 grand over a weekend yeah it's a lot of money yeah i don't know if you if you, if you take that amount of money you offset a buy a lot of things with that money you no know, people think oh you take 180 grand brilliant you made on it you've not made 180 you maybe made a little bit because you've then invested 160,000 or whatever into yeah. the local economy which is you burger vans your water suppliers everything marquee suppliers everything isn't it? absolutely the local economy benefits uh, financially way more than than we do out of it what, what we make is really not a lot but there's, there's a big sense of pride with the North northumbrian as well which which impacts why we do it and i think for me as well it was it wasn't really about making money the naughty because i've got the other side of the business to do that it was more kind of a showcase to say actually mountain bikers can come into this environment and actually, post event, you'd probably never know we've been here, mm-hmm. and and it was a change of perception. I think that's quite important, especially in a national park, which, you know, all uh, all land is coming under more pressure from, you know, whether that's agricultural subsidies changing or new biodiversity. Those that's going to happen across the board. So, whoever you are, whether you're a walker or a mountain biker, you're probably going to have to be conscious of that, or or it will affect you. And has most of this work been in the Cheviot Hills for you, or are you looking further afield, or? 
yeah, and, and, and looking at the environment, the impact of mountain biking. Because I think one thing we're quite lucky here is actually because we're so sparsely populated, because there's not a lot of people, we can look as outdoor enthusiasts to other areas of the country and go, what a mess they've made of it. And, and we can stop ourselves getting to that stage, can't we? Yeah, absolutely. We're really lucky here. Um, you know, if every mountain biker in Northumberland came and rode, it's still not a huge amount of people. If yeah. you go to somewhere like Tetford Forest or Canic Chase, um, the amount of mountain bikers there, or, or even Coombecon down in South South Wales is an interesting point, actually, because it's densely populated down there. Um, so you kind of do have to control where people go to to a certain degree, which you don't have to do up here because there just isn't the same pressure. Um, so it's just learning from how they've done it there and and kind of how one strategy looks really good, but actually you discover 10 years later it's had a knock-on effect that has led to this. So it's And because we've got that evidence now over the last 20 years, and mountain biking hasn't really been a huge thing in Northumberland for 20 years, we're able to look at all these different case studies and say, well, if it comes here, this is what we need to be conscious of and that's what we need to be conscious of. And So are you for the Glen Tress approach because the Glen Tress if people don't know is up by Peebles we do a, a GPS training course Peebles so we pass it Peebles is just so mountain bike orientated they've they've taken a, a a hillside and totally made these tracks and and they're everywhere mountain bikes are everywhere their whole the 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 chosen mountain biking and the the, the, the now is that is that a positive way of doing it rather than just going off a random forest and yourself in Kidlin Forest? Um, I think initially the way Glen Tress was done was good and that was done to try and stop people building trails elsewhere. Uh, and I think its premise is good, it's introduced people to the sport, but I think what was lacking in that is that you had riders get better and they reach a point and Glen Tress is, is quite basic, really. So then, inevitably... They want to go and build all the tracks. Right. <laughs> so it's actually kind of created more of a problem than it's solved in, in a way. Um, so you need to be conscious of that. And I think at that point it was very much driven by a big agency, whether that's Forestry England, Natural England, or whoever. Um, they build the tracks and they put them in. But mountain bikers, as a whole, they like to build their own tracks. Right. So I think we've moved to the point where mountain biking groups have formed now saying, can we work with you and we'll build the tracks? Let's work together, say, this patch of land here is suitable for a bike track, but we want to build it. Can we do that? Because we know what works and, and we understand that. So it's moved from kind of, here's a facility, to actually you get involved and help us make this facility. And then is the good practice in making tracks, is it? So it's just a case yeah. of guys going with their spades and... Well, that, that's still that's still an area we're working on, mountain biking, and then that's always been part of it. And in somewhere like Northumberland, it doesn't have a massive impact because you're not getting... 5,000 people riding a trail but if somebody builds a trail badly they don't understand drainage or they don't understand ecology or people pressures or if there's a footpath that they're trying to jump across and then you get a lot of people riding it that's where we get a lot of problems with mm-hmm. mountain biking so it's just trying to say be be a bit conscious of, of where you're going to do that ideally speak to the landowner first find out if they're trying to do some conservation on that land find out if there's any you know soils in there you need to be wary of or if there's any species or, or whatever it's all these things that are really important um that's your starting point but if you can't do that and you're, you're going to build a trail anyway just try and do it with best practice in mind you don't want to hit a person you don't want to disturb some nesting birds you don't want to create flooding you don't want to damage a river bank and that doesn't necessarily mean your trail is going to be any less fun mm-hmm. and that's kind of what we're trying to get through i think people see 
that side of it is curtailing fun, but it, it doesn't at all. You can still have a really good trail mm-hmm. if you if you just do it properly. Because what we've seen in the walking world is you no. Know, we we just talking briefly about this this morning. Is is you know, there was erosion on on hilltops from overwalking. There still is hill erosion, and we've kind of compensated that by you know, putting flags down everywhere, yeah. whether you like it or not. But then it's I'm amazed when we do that how quickly the countryside recovers, how it recoups, and and and, yeah. and how that grows. Um, and I suppose with you guys, if you if you're building tracks, actually, if those tracks get deserted or abandoned it's amazing how quickly nature takes those back in isn't it oh yeah really quickly i mean you can kind of we we're trying to get to the point now where we almost treat them like um a a really common thing now is to restore old peat drains and it's really simple process you build a wall Mm -hmm. and you block it and you let the peat build up in there and it's the same with the mountain bike track if you've got a track that goes down a hill if you don't want to ride it again put a little dam in that track Mm -hmm. And just watch it recover. Within eighteen months, you'll never know it was there. Wow! It's as simple. It's as simple as that, um, and and it's fantastic. So I think the the impact that people see, and if you're out walking and you know you're passionate about your local area, it can be quite shocking to see that. But if you can just remove yourself and look at a slightly longer time scale, you start to realise actually the impact it's having is it is minimal in yeah. a, in a scale. It is, yeah, and the the countryside does recover do you know the countryside is a, is a man-made landscape isn't it and actually it is in England yeah if, if, if the farmers took the sheep off and the, the livestock off trees would start coming back and, and, and we see that you know you yeah. start going back to the way it was um, like people don't know we, before the Romans came to this country we lived on the higher ground because we didn't know how to drain the low grounds and the Romans came along told us about this thing called a field drain and we drain all the bogs and move into the lowlands we lived on the, the, the hilltops before then which is just like we've got Iron Age hill forts around here, and like, that's where we lived up on the hills because actually down below was dangerous. Yeah. And now man's moved, and, and those are hill forts of kind of just, just hummocks in the hill, aren't they? Yeah, and I think that I think that's a really good case in point. I think what we can perceive as natural landscape, it's, it's there's very little natural landscape in England, so the land has always been altered. And I think mountain biking is a relatively new thing and it's altering the landscape in a really small, you know, a trail can be a foot wide. It's a tiny, tiny strip, ribbon of of single track. Um, So I think it's it's bearing that in mind that we're not altering the landscape over acres and thousands of acres. We're altering it in a really narrow strip and the benefits it has for in terms of kids getting outside, in terms of what you learn, you know, you're outside, you see things... And you get a bit of a thrill if you see a raptor or whatever, or you, or you see a red squirrel or whatever it is. Um, but you're making friends and you're learning about outdoor craftsmanship at the same time as well, because you can be in quite a remote area. And I think it's that friendship as well. We know, yeah. we've, we've, what we've lived through the last couple of years, kind of being out there outdoors, you know, yeah. mental health of that as well is just second to none, really. And especially with doing what you guys are doing, is, is, you know, you're pushing yourself sometimes to the edge and there's... there's excitement adrenaline and uh, great friendships are made on that aren't they oh yeah I, I think so it's that shared kind of camaraderie mm-hmm. I, th- I think is, is massive and I think it teaches you so many lessons that you can that are applicable to everyday life um, and I'm a really strong advocate for how good mountain biking can be and it's no different to going on an adventure walk or something like that the, the emotion behind it is the same mm-hmm. I think um, so I think that's worth bearing in mind I think there's a lot to um and I don't think tensions between walkers and mountain bikers are anywhere near as high as you sometimes see the press. Yeah. For me, 
I've never get in a conflict with a walker. No. It's, it's never happened. Um, because I think we understand that we're doing it for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, that's a massive, massive benefit. So is it education then that is, is needed in the mountain biking world or is it just I think good practice? How, 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 how do you get that message out? Because, no, you say there's not a lot of conflict, but sometimes you're walking down a footpath and a, and a cyclist on a mountain bike overtakes you at 30 miles an hour and you kind of go, really? Yeah, that's now, actually, issue, yeah. The mountain biker should not be there. Um, it's a footpath. They're not actually doing any harm. Yeah. But actually, if you had stepped out, potentially we could have all been injured. That, that, that is an issue. And I think that comes from... I think there's two things about that. I think um, one is that if you see a walker on your bike, it's there right away and that's it. You know, that's, that's the walker's right re- It's the walker's right away. And that, that's non-negotiable, really, because you pose the bigger risk than the walker because you're travelling faster. So you've got to give them space and you've got to slow down and you've got to stop if required. Um, but I think that comes from a lot of the time is that, well, even around here, a lot of the bridleways... Um, actually really neglected yeah. and they're in a bad state so we can go and ride on the bridleway but we are going to churn that up something rotten whereas actually we might have a flagstone footpath so if you remove the kind of law the legal side of it you'd say actually we're going to cause a lot less damage to the environment by going on that flagstone footpath but legally we are in the wrong mm-hmm. um, so that requires if you're going to do that which could upset people you're going to have to be on your best behaviour if you're going to ride on the footpath. You're going to have to stop and you're going to let them come through because that's where conflict could arise because it's just a perception of, of what that footpath is and, and the law and everything else that comes along with it. And you can probably reason your case, but you can't do that if you're going to buzz past somebody and potentially hit them because mm-hmm. then you've lost you've lost any credence uh, whatsoever mm-hmm. as a bike rider if you're going to do that. I suppose, it, again, it's it's... I keep saying it's education. It's it's education that you know what I, I've sometimes sat there with friends and and I've got a new motorbike. I'm going to go off the Chevy Hills. All right, so you're going to go on Green Lane. What are you going on about? I can just go anywhere. And they say it, and they kind of go, no, you can't. You get a Green Lanes, and they can, you can just go anywhere. But actually, it, you even give them a map, and they they great respect. They can't even read the map to understand where they can go, where they aren't. Yeah. And actually. That's sometimes where you, you're working from, really, isn't it? It's no, um, it's getting that. I don't know. It's the it's the basics of, of countryside navigation, whether it, it's on a horse, a, a, a motorcycle, or a or a mountain bike. Yeah, it is, and I think, uh, yeah, you're dead right, and I think we're starting from quite a, you know, a base point that is low for want of a, for want of a better term, um, and that that should really start at home to be honest a lot yeah. of this stuff before you leave before you leave the house um, but that's going to take a while and I think what's happened with mountain biking as well you've probably got an older cohort who are quite well versed in all of this stuff but you've got a, a large percentage now of riders who were brought up at Glen Tress and this has been a sort of unintended consequence because you go to a highly managed trail centre but it becomes really hard to differentiate between that trail centre and somewhere that isn't a highly managed yeah. environment. So you treat them the same way. Yeah. And and it just doesn't work. It, it's a completely different experience and you need to adjust your behaviour and everything. So I think something's just got a bit lost in translation there. Because Glen Trust you is a it's a purpose built trail. Yeah. There's nobody around. You can go as fast as possible and actually it's it's great fun. Yeah. And then you kinda of come to the Simon Side Hills where we are, you know, yeah. a forest similar forested area, 
well, I can just do exactly the same. Exactly. But the reality is there's two car parks, there's lots of people there walking, yeah. dogs on. Yeah. We just come up to Christmas, out with the, the dogs post-Christmas or something, starting the new fitness, and some guy's coming flying down on his on his mountain bike. Yeah, yeah. and it's just, just, it's just an entirely different... Um, and and that's again comes back to a lot of people don't know where trails come from. Yeah. They don't know how a trail's formed. They don't know if it's a footpath. They don't know if it's a bridleway. Mm-hmm. They just see it as they're just looking at that two foot in front of their yeah. wheel. And and you know I'm not gonna sort of um sort of excuse that, but I think that is a symptom of of everybody pushed into a honeypot yeah. location. And that's what you assume you can do everywhere. Then so it's just that's a bit of an educational thing. Yeah, we're actually cycling around your own doorstep understanding where you can go which you can't go is a natural progression but actually once you've been in that honeypot as you call it you can come out and, and come back into your own environment without understanding how it's been managed isn't it really? absolutely yeah and, and I think most people um, given the opportunity actually there was a recent survey done actually by there's a good organisation in Scotland developing mountain biking in Scotland who are funded by Scottish Cycling and they got Edinburgh and Napier to do a a survey on mountain bikers because most think do mountain bikers care about the environment or not and I think there's a, a bit of a perception in the general public that, that they don't but they found that 90% of mountain bikers really do care about the environment that they're in. and they might not just they might just not understand how to interpret that care but they do fund their fundamental belief is yeah we do care we don't want to wreck it, wreck it so that tells you quite a lot I think about mountain bikers it's just teaching them how you do that and I think as well with the mountain bike words, it's kind of start to be a lot more positive. There's some really quite inspirational guys there. You know, I, you see them. You know, you see the kids, and uh, it's it's wonderful. You know, kids around here, you know, the twelve, and they've got the rucksack on the back. They've got the, sh- the long shorts on. They've got the long socks on, and and they've got the trainers on, and and the cycling away, being Danny Hart. It's brilliant. And you it's sit there awesome, going, and, and I see them up on Simon's side, you see them back around the village, they're all lying, and they're exhausted. You can't, that's how, they're so inspired. They go onto YouTube, watch these heroes, and they want to be like, but actually, what, what great, rather than actually smoking cigarettes oh. and drinking alcohol and, and doing all the bad, not doing the yeah. bad things they should be doing. It's, it's great. I mean, in terms of what you could want for your kids, you know, they've got a really good group of mates yeah. they're out getting fit they're out having fun they're kind of pushing their limits on personal limits I mean that's all really good stuff um, and f- so actually if they're in the wrong place does it really matter no because uh, actually they're just nah, the, the th- kids just enjoying themselves kids and just for me it's a lot of live and let live yeah. they've got the helmets they've got full face yeah. helmets yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got I, I think it's amazing and a lot of them a lot of the kids they want to help maintain yeah. trails and be part of that so you can actually without them even realising you can kind of teach them about yeah. all this stuff at the same time if you get if you get them the opportunity to, to do that. Um, so that's a massive thing. That's one thing we're quite keen on doing in Rothbury is having a little group where where we have got trails that maybe shouldn't be there. Can we formalise them and say, well, actually, let us maintain them mm-hmm. and we'll do it as a group and maybe we'll help maintain that footpath as a byproduct of, of that as well. Um, we'll not ride it, but to say thanks for allowing us to have our little space, I will sort the drainage there and... And they love it. Mm-hmm. it. It becomes part of the kind of culture of the. Because that's the sport. one thing with the the sport there is. I think the like my son was he was very much into the, the downhill biking, and, and he was the child I was just describing uh, before. But then when he the culture when he went to the clubs was brilliant. You know the, the yeah. encouragement they gave him. The 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 you know he, he 
he was ten foot tall, you know, on the day. So it was it was wonderful. And he was the guy with his GoPro strapped to his chest and things. And and like, it's great really to see that camaraderie of like because yeah. it, it comes when his footage. You can hear people cheering him. He's coming down. I'm the dad who I'm the dad who walked up and down. I mean tracks on recce days and stuff. So I kind of like, and he's there going. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do that. There, I'm going really. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for his two runs a day, standing around the forest for six hours or something. So uh, <laughs> I, uh, I can't tell you how amazing I think it is as a sport, and it's it shaped my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, for for the good, mm-hmm. you know, entirely for the good. Um, you know, I wouldn't have had an excuse to see all the places I've seen in the world if it wasn't for my bike. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah. Yeah, this is your little thing we need to solve, but it's nothing. No. It's nothing major. I think that's it because I think the the sport has got uh, such a good top level, hasn't yeah. it? No, it's 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 exciting. It's 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 making for movies and 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 this kind of thing. It's like anything, isn't it? Within any industry, there's there's good people and bad people. There's there's yeah. football hooligans go to football matches. Not everyone goes to football matches. It's a football hooligan. There's there's farmers who end up in in. In course, an, an RSPCA is soon, for, but actually, it's a minority. Minority. There's a minority yeah. of walkers leave gates open. There's a minority yeah. of whatever, and that's what that's what we need to just kind of squash out in any sport oh, or it, hobby, don't we? Really, totally. And I think I, I think people who are happy tend not to be so vocal about it. Yeah, <laughs> it's the people who are unhappy about something can be vocal about it, and that can kind of percolate into other people's. But actually, I think the majority of people. Are quite happy with mountain biking yeah. in the countryside, whether you're into it or not. Um, and the people who do it are really happy about it. Yeah. Um, and I just think if if you want a healthy, happy nation, people getting outside and riding the bike is, is such a key part of that. And how do you think the the recent winds and the the storms will affect it? Because I say I was just. Uh, I see last Sunday I was just talking to a friend who's a key mountain biker around here, and he says he says his mountain biking has kind of come to a grinding halt because a lot of his trails there's, there's trees across it I don't know how these are priorities to get them, them moved and um, that's going to take it, it's going to be hard I think and we're, we're busy trying to work through that um, we're in a tricky situation around here because again a lot of mountain biking trails and this has happened across country they're informal mm-hmm. so the landowner knows they're there but they're tolerated rather than promoted yeah um, so it's going with a chainsaw on a, on a satin and start cutting the trees down, which are not your trees, which yeah. you shouldn't really be there. Yeah, it's hard. Isn't it? So it gets really hard because now we're having to say to a landowner, well, we know you know the end, you've tolerated them, but actually we want to clear them. Mm-hmm. So that's going to require a degree of formalisation because we might want to hire somebody with a chainsaw to go and cut that windblow tree, and that's a big step for them to take because it introduces all sorts of archaic legal ramifications because then you potentially turn into a right of way you're actually starting that, yeah. that process that could be claimed as a right away yeah. because now it's formally been and there's a liability issue there um so it, it, it's it's hard to, mm-hmm. to get that right um i think if we can do that and i think some of the conversations we're having are positive um that'd be a huge step forward for mountain biking because there's a lot of people now even in this area who are reliant on that to yeah. get their you know they're fixed if you want you know at the end of a long day they want to go out and ride the bike and without any trails to do that i think it's going to impact people's lives qu- quite negatively mm-hmm. w- without that finally gps navigation is it something is the gps training podcast so we kind of have to swing it a little bit to gps navigation is this something 
I've not asked this before. So is, it, is this something you've used with on mountain biking? I've in the got past? I've got a Sunto. Um, <laughs> so um, there are other better brands available, probably. Um, I do like it. Yeah, um, I do. I do like. So it. when you're doing your um, your events, your cross country events, what is that what you call? It? Yeah. Yeah. Can you use a GPS for that or not? You can. Yeah, a lot of people do. Um, you'll see a lot of garments on on mounted on the um, on the kind of handlebars. You get the head units. Yeah. See a lot of that. People record the route and then they'll go back and you know I think the garments give you a little arrow they do, yeah. as to where to go. Yeah. Um, and I think that's great to be honest with you, especially in an area that you might have visited once where there's because at the naughty it is signposted. Yeah. And when you go back and suddenly it's not signposted. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that thing you know, it's funny because for us with GPS navigation we talk about Kidland Forest. Let's take that as an example where you you do naughty Northumbrian is as we said it's easy to get lost in there and actually. Whether you're a mountain biker or a walker, if you can plan your route and leave that with whoever you're going to leave that at home and off you go, it gives you extra security and, and takes a lot of that pressure off you, your navigation skills, rather than cycling and going, I don't know where I am. Yeah. And actually often the owner and survey maps are struggle to relate to what's actually on the ground because it is a working environment for trees coming down, etc., etc. Oh, yeah. And, and the lands, yeah, especially in there, the landscape changes. So your point of reference can be gone within a year so you can get lost really easy so the gps and especially big days in the cheviots which i don't do that many of um but every summer we'll do two or three where we might do 50 or 60 miles i've i've even been at times i think where am i you know and i know it really well there are times when you're tired and you think ah and that's where the gps can come in really handy um and i always carry a map but you know when you're tired or whatever um i think having that tech is, is a big thing and mountain bikers um Increasingly, I see them using a lot of it, so I think that's that's a good thing as mm-hmm. far as I'm concerned. Um, and you know where people are going as well. Yeah, that's right. And and I suppose there's a lot now of the apps and things coming on board for the mountain bikes, isn't it? You no know, Strava is yeah. big, and but has that encouraged people to go faster than what they should do? Because actually, <laughs> it's all this time trial. You know. <laughs> can of worms. Is, this is, one. Is a can of worms. Is it? So I just stay away from Strava and the uh, the. Uh, <laughs> I see. It's it has its benefits. It's amazing. Uh, you know the guys at Walla they do a Strava Winter Series, which is brilliant because they can all kind of have their little camaraderie remotely. So yeah, if one yeah. guy goes and rides in front, and then another one does, they can kind of compare the times. It it can have a slight problem with trail modifications, where somebody who might not like to be beaten might just cut a corner. Yeah. And right. then once that corner's cut, everyone starts cutting uh, a corner. Right. That can be a bit of a problem. So before you know it you've got a straight line trail because everybody's trying to beat each other. <laughs> um, so there's a bit of a thing where you call it a Strava line in, in the lingo. Oh, look at that Strava line somebody's put in. I'll tell you my Strava story. My son was into mountain biking. We were up on the carriageway, which is behind us here. And uh, it was actually, it must have been between Christmas and New Year. And actually there was a section. I was I was always kind of near the, the top of it. And uh, you must be know the section just from uh, where the mobile phone masks down to the gate. And it actually stops as a bridge, that Strava section. And as I was going down on this December, January day, there was just a sheet of ice just coming. I was absolutely flying. And I hit this ice and I just slid along the ice and and, 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 and slid. And then my first reaction was, I actually broke a rib at this point. I, my first reaction was, pick my mobile phone at the back of my cycling where... <laughs> so I actually got the, the fastest time on Strava, but I did the last five yards was on my backside sliding along on ice. But I, the, my first reaction was, put that 
<laughs> I did it. <laughs> but it's glory. You got to you got to be searching for the glory if you're going to get injured. <laughs> and my son, who went back the following day, must be beat me more than likely. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was all for that glory, uh, that that glory section. It was yeah. So uh, yeah, I can it, 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 yeah. I suppose it's that that's kind of the the, the next step really. And as you say, it's you know, it brings that camaraderie. You see the same people, you see your friends, and, and whatever doing this. So in some ways, it's good, but potentially there's these yeah it, yeah that, that that'll just that'll just lie in itself over time i think it's when you get any new tech yeah and people it's just how people use it to start with and then it settles into its own rhythm i think and when i think strava will, will get there with that um but overall i think i think it's great and what it has been really good for is if is if i go away somewhere and say d-side or wherever balata well, I, I don't know where the trails yeah. are there's no bike shop here I can go on Strava and I can see where the trails are, and and that's really handy. There's a bit of tech. Um, that's brilliant. Yeah, that, that's awesome. So to finish off, have I missed anything out? Anything I should have asked? Is there anything you're gonna switch off the mic for? You go, John. You should have asked me about this. Anything I've completely missed in your life, which has been um, fundamental on your your very much cycling background. Anyway, is there anything I've missed out on? No, I don't think so. Um, I think. Uh, I think you've pretty much covered it. You, you've done your research. Yeah. <laughs> um, a bit scarily so, actually. <laughs> it's amazing what you can find out on the internet. Oh, you know, scary, it? yeah. <laughs> scary, it's a amazing, bit worrisome. Amazing what you can find out on the internet. It's actually quite interesting, because actually when you start researching someone, you kind of start seeing another side to them, because actually they're just, for me, you're just a, an individual who I kind of bump into in yeah. the corridors around here so give me my useless fact about Kidlin Forest are you ready for it because this ties into where we are so people don't know we're, we're in a place called Muckles Yard um, in, in Rothbury and um, Kidlin Forest that we've talked about for your naughty nothing we used to have a shooting lodge you know that or not you used to have yeah, a shooting lodge yeah. um, which has now been demolished it was demolished um, it was owned by oh, I can't remember it was owned by the anyway it doesn't matter who it was owned by anyway and um, and and it was demolished. It was actually demolished. Do you know who it was demolished by? I don't know who it was demolished by, no. It was demolished by Thomas Muckle, who is our landlord's father. So he got the the, huh. the dem- dem- demolition rights for uh, this 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 uh, this shooting lodge. And uh, I was actually just reading some history about it, and I, and I was fascinated. And I come with the last paragraph that Thomas Muckle and Sons got the contract to demolish it. Then I also found somewhere else that actually. Um, it was quite an interesting story because they they in those they blew it up with dynamite. So they blew it up with dynamite, and they set off this dynamite in there to blow blow this building up. But only half of them exploded. <laughs> so luckily, the men went and had the bait or the lunch rather than going in. And while they were having the lunch, the other half went off, and the building fell down. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> so I said to our landlord, um, who's now Philip, who's is his father who did this, I said, I, I can't believe what I've discovered this weekend. So I, I told him, he said, he said, you know what? My my father, first of all, before he he, 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 he knocked this building down, stripped all the lead off and everything, and was recycling everything. And he said, we had our first overseas family holiday off the money that they got from the lead on Kidland, on the, on the, on the house there. Uh-huh. And he said, his dad kept saying, Kidland, Kidland Forest has paid for this, or Kidland Shooting Lodge has paid for this holiday, you know. So that was one of his childhood memories. Uh, oh, so I thought that was quite a nice uh, link there. Because, um, yeah, it was a... Because that was before it was forested. I think the, that the shooting lodge was in there before it was a uh, yeah. forest forested. So 
That's my useless fact. If didn't you didn't know that, that. yeah. There you are. It may be nothing to people listening, but uh, fingers crossed it does. So thank you, Tommy, for joining me on the yeah, latest you. GPS Train podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. And yeah, it's, uh, been, it's been a bit of an insight into the mountain biking world. And uh, yeah, and if you do anything exciting in the future, we very much hope you can come back and join us in a, a year or two's time. Oh, I'd love to, yeah. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening to the GPS Training Podcast, the monthly podcast keeping you up to date with everything in the world of outdoor GPS navigation. Mm-hmm.